Hello everyone, welcome or welcome back to another episode of the Ticker Podcast with me, Noemi Gistello. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Pulse by Public.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. First of all, belated happy Easter to our listeners, to those of you who celebrated it, and to those of you who didn't, we hope you had an amazing bank holiday weekend. Joining me on the show today are my colleagues, Tim Human and Steve Wade. Welcome both to the show. Hi, Noemi. Hi, great to be here. How was your bank holiday, guys? Very nice, um, although I didn't do very much. I think I was scared off by all the train strikes and high prices <laughs> and things like that. So um, had a nice staycation. Typical England. What about you, Steve? Uh, yeah, it was good. Um, a little bit jet lagged uh, at the beginning. As, as many people will know, we've been on the road quite a bit. So part of it was spent traveling back from an amazing forum and awards in Canada. But yeah, just making the most of those few days a year where we've got sun in the UK. So uh, good to spend some of it outside. Well, thanks for joining me today, guys. Just before we start our conversation, I just wanted to give our listeners an outline of this month's episode. We have a couple of interesting interviews, including a chat with Aaron Howald, Vice President of Investor Relations at Louisiana Pacific Corporation to talk about IR challenges, solutions, and trends at smaller cap companies. Later in the episode, we also speak to Austin Anquitz, social media sensation, co-founder and executive chairman of Wits Ventures. We talk to him about IR communication for retail investors and also about how IR teams can build and use social media channels to their advantage. But first, let's talk AI. The AI boom is happening all over the world, uh, it's accelerating quickly. We have seen the fast-paced rate of progress in this field. Platforms like ChatGPT have been subject of hot debate and uh, extensive coverage over the past few months. Most uh, recently, also thousands of tech experts signed a letter asking for an immediate six months pause of the training of um, AI systems more powerful than uh, chat GPT-4. And uh, the first defamation lawsuit seems looming over OpenAI chatbots. Let's bring it back to IR though, guys. (laughs) Based on your uh, conversations, on your uh, meetings, on your webinars, on uh, forums, and uh, everything that's been happening in the space, Let's start from how are IR professionals using artificial intelligence now? Steve, let's start from you. What what, uh, have you heard from IROs? Yeah, I think maybe before we look at how um, IR teams are using AI, it's just worth reflecting on how many people are currently experimenting with AI because it is still relatively new um, in terms of this tool becoming mainstream you know they're talking about november when chat gpt was released as being like the iphone moment for artificial intelligence and and yeah i was listening to a a webinar that, that tim was hosting and we ran a survey with the listeners i think we had over sort of 500 ir professionals listening in and we just asked people you know 
are you currently experimenting with generative AI in your IR programs? And I was quite surprised that over a quarter of listeners, so 28%, are actually already experimenting with AI in their IR programs, which I think is quite significant given that it's still early days yeah. for this technology. And it really shows that there's perceived value in there. In terms of the how and the use cases, I tend to categorize these into three different ways. Mm -hmm. So the first one is creativity, which is asking the tools to provide you something, whether it's a transcript, a, wing, a LinkedIn post, anything like that. The second category would be analysis and optimization, where you're giving the tool something and you're saying make it more concise or yeah, summarize these into three points. Um, and the third would be mass interaction, particularly in the area of retail investor relations. So that's where these chatbots or voice clones can kind of come in. But no, Tim, I'm sure you've got some, some really sort of specific and a bit more detail around how IR teams. Yeah, Tim, you were moderating the webinar, so tell us. What you, did you find out? Yeah, I think um, the webinar was really interesting, um, as you said, Steve, in terms of showing just how many investor relations professionals are experimenting with generative AI at the moment. Um, and in the webinar, we, they, they, we, we've got to see a few specific use cases about how it's being applied to investor relations activities and how it's actually being useful right now, like actually saving people time. And so one of them was summarizing notes. Um, going back to some of the different categories that you mentioned, Steve. But, um, you know, for example, one person, they went to an investment conference. You know, after that, after a day's worth of meetings, you know, they had several pages worth of notes. And they wanted to bring that uh, sort of down into just five or six key bullet points from the day. This is a very common sort of IR task that you'd need to do. Could potentially take a few hours, depending on the notes. But Jack, uh, Chat GPT was able to do that in just a couple of seconds. So yeah. it saved a huge amount of time there. Um, another use case that we heard about was generating text. And so, for example, somebody would like to create a social media post for their company page or even text for their website. And there, you know, you've got the tyranny of the blank page, right? You have to sort of come up with something uh, from nothing. And in that situation, you can put in a prompt to chat GPT, and it will generate some text for you. It's not going to be perfect, um, but someone on the, web, on the webinar was saying it's about 80% of what they need. And then they go in there and they add, you know, the final touches and the editing to get what they want. And then one other thing we heard about was sort of uh, improving like communications and giving advice. And so that's where you might take something you've already done, like a speech or a press release, put it into chat GPT, and say, how can I make this better like the next time I use it? And I think people are finding it useful for that as well. One caveat with that final point, though, is that there's still a lot of questions about, you know, to what extent you can or whether you ever should use confidential information when interacting with ChatGPT. I'm sure we'll talk about this <laughs> a bit more, but that's obviously, um, if you're going to put something into it, make sure it's a speech that's already been published, not the one that you're planning to give at the, on your uh, next earnings call. Yeah. 
so definitely there is uh, there is some use there for IROs. Um, but also, I suppose there are some uh, limitations on some risks as well. Steve, um, you interviewed the, <laughs> the bot a few months ago. You asked about risks and limitations, but uh, I mean, from what the bot was telling you, from what you're hearing from uh, people in the industry, what, what do you think are the limitations on the risk that the bot poses to the profession? Absolutely. Probably one of the easiest, but least fun interviews I've ever done because there was no sort of banter and human interaction in it. But yeah, I mean, just to pick up on the limitations, I think one of the biggest risks, as Tim mentioned, is around security. If you can give any advice, it's do not put proprietary information into particularly the public sort of chat GPT as well. And that doesn't just relate to you as an individual, you as an IRO, I think it's worth mentioning that this applies across the organization as well. So there's a real security and data privacy risk there as well, which which can't be overlooked. In terms of other limitations, uh, I think it stems from things like, you know, data input, the AI tool, whichever one you're using, and there's, there's thousands out there, it can only be as good as the data provided allows it to be. That's the building block for what it's going to provide. So that needs to be accurate, um, validated, and, and all of those sort of things as well. I think also in terms of accuracy, some people have sort of noted that this is still, these tools are very much in their infancy and there are issues around accuracy. So if you're going to use this seriously, as a way to provide information to retail investors that are visiting your websites to answer those frequently asked questions, you've got to make sure that the responses are going to be accurate and that you're not misleading people. So there's a real kind of issue there. But I think just to kind of bring us back onto a positive note, um, in terms of how the IR community are thinking about the different risks, um, again, If you haven't listened to Tim's webinar, you've got to listen to it because he did another poll on there. Just simply asking people, are you concerned or optimistic about the impact of AI? And broadly, 77% of people were optimistic about how generative AI can impact IR. So I think many of these limitations are more sort of hurdles to overcome as opposed to stumbling blocks that would prevent you from wanting to use technology. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of the sort of main risks and limitations that we're sort of thinking about at the moment, particularly in relation to investor relations. Um, You know, just to add on that topic of sort of the quality and reliability of information, one person on the webinar simply asked ChatGPT to tell them about themselves. And it sort of started off well, it got a few of the initial details correct. They just started to invent information about, you know, your professional background, about what qualifications you have, you know, trying to guess what the the most, you know, the most logical thing to say next is, but, you know, completely false information, basically. And as you you mentioned, Noemi, at the beginning of this uh, conversation, that people are now starting to sue ChatGPT. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think it's in a different place from something like Google, where Google presents you with, you know, search results. Whereas ChatGPT is actually creating 
information. In a way, it is the source of the information. And so it's much more liable for the information that it produces. Um, so definitely, you know, take with a pinch of salt anything that comes out of it for now. One of the risks I just wanted to mention was around authenticity as yeah. well, because I think that's such an important thing for, for companies, especially today, is to be authentic in your message. And, you know, if your executive has just given a speech on something really important for your company, your employees, all of your stakeholders, and then it's flagged that, say, 80, 85 percent of that message was created by generative AI. I mean, what does that say about the authenticity of what you're saying there? I don't think anyone imagines that CEOs and CFOs write all of their own speeches themselves. <laughs> you know, they definitely get a lot of help, especially from IR people, of course. But from humans, they um, get help. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what does that say about your message and how much you really mean it? So I think that's something else that people will have to consider as we use these tools more. Yeah, I can see, though, some people would say, you know, uh, it's just a matter of time and just because people aren't ready for it because, you know, we're not used to it. But yeah, definitely it's a valid point and accuracy also is a valid point. I, I think I was telling you offline, I asked ChatGPT, who am I? And he said, I've been the editor of IR magazine since 2017. But yeah, you know. Congratulations um... <laughs> on your promotion. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, um, many listeners will know I just joined the company six months ago and I'm definitely not the editor of IR magazine. That's James Beach. <laughs> so um, guys, we've looked at, you know, uh, you know the use of uh, that IROs are making of uh, of AI, uh, but I just wanted to you know look at the other side. So, what are you um, hearing from IROs on whether you know investors um, will get information in a different way? Whether you know AI will change the way they get information about companies, uh, strategies, um, prospects, Steve. Do you want to go first? Yeah, no, I think that question around how people on the other side of the table, the investors, are using AI to, to, to kind of get a better view on a company is really pertinent. And I think actually investors are far ahead of companies in terms of their adoption of technology in general, partly due to, you know, investors are rewarded for taking sensible risks. Whereas IR officers typically are more risk managers. Um, and so there's a bit of a cultural difference in terms of adoption of technology. A few examples I can think of. I know that we mentioned a while back that there's a small group of hedge funds that have been using NLP, you know, natural language processing, to analyze the tone in earnings calls and get a sense of uh, management sentiment. So how confident are they about the results that they're talking about on their earnings calls in terms of what sort of language they've used to describe those? And that's helping those type of investors make more informed decisions. Um, we've also heard examples where investors are actually using satellite images of yeah. car parks and analyzing what the revenue is going to be based on the number of cars that are that are in those car parks yeah. and obviously there's a huge amount of sort of intelligence and analysis that goes into that as well one investor actually said to me we know your sales uh figures before you do because we're looking at these yeah. sort of things the third one that i think is kind of widely out there is you know it's quite a 
sort of widespread practice is robo reporting or automated journalism, where I think you know some of the big media outlets um, are synthesizing information from earnings results, um, company press releases, and putting out articles around you know um, whatever the the figures have been that quarter. So I think AI has already been influencing how investors are receiving information. Automated journalism is frightening. Very frightening. Yeah, Anyways, no, not, our, not our favourite subject. No, no. Um, no. <laughs> and very annoying for um, IR people as well when the source of the information, uh, mm-hmm. going back to that point you were making, Steve, about the, the, the quality of the input is, is really important. Yeah. When these uh, uh, machines get the wrong data about your company and then start churning out news stories, you know, with the wrong dividend figure, for example, that can be quite annoying, uh, you know, at the least. But um, yeah, as, as Steve was saying, there's a, you know, a huge number of ways that professional investors are using AI, you know, as part of the investment process, as part of idea generation. I mean, I think switching to generative AI, things like ChatGPT, I mean, that's something that's still relatively new for investors as well as everybody else. And just going back to that point I was making about search engines, you know, I think there's a general trend in terms of, you know, people getting information more directly. You know, if you go on Google nowadays and, and put in a, a question, it won't just give you a list of websites. It'll also surface some of the information from those websites so you don't even have to click through. And so we already have this trend towards, you know, can you get the information directly from a query rather than having to search for it? And ChatGPT potentially takes us further in that direction. What does that mean for companies? Well, you know, everybody wants to be or needs to be a search engine optimization expert mm-hmm. nowadays. You know, yeah. we need to be a chat GPT optimization expert as well. And that's something else that, uh, for people to consider. Um, one other area which has already been mentioned, but I think it is worth uh, touching on too, is chatbots. So for that sort of one to many communications, yeah. I mean, companies are already using chatbots and some IR departments are already using chatbots. When you come to the IR page, you know, it can sort of bring up some quick information from the annual report or, you know, recent sustainability report, for example. We already have that capability. Can generative AI take that to another level of sort of, you know, being much more informative and potentially much more personalized as well? And so that's potentially very useful for IR teams. It could save them a lot of time. But um, as, as you mentioned, Steve, uh, you know, IR people are generally quite risk averse when it comes to technology and may want quite a lot of control over what their chatbot is saying on their website, you know. So maybe we'll have to put some pretty big guardrails on the generative AI when we're releasing it in that way. Yeah. Well, we shall uh, wait and see what happens next. We're running out of time, so I just wanted to to close and ask you um, if there are any uh, IR teams who are interested in experimenting and starting to trial uh, artificial intelligence for some of their tasks, for example, where can they start from? I mean, I think that one of the main takeaways that came out of our webinar was simply to sort of play around with it and give it a go. I mean, there's nothing stopping you, uh, you know, downloading ChatGPT onto your phone or, you know, paying for a subscription to one of the more, you know, the recent version. And so you can start to use that and just put in prompts, play around with it, add in information and see what comes out. And, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the intelligence or the, the, the quality of your prompts that you use, um, you know, and your, your sort of 
understanding of how it works and how best to work with the technology is, is only going to improve by, like, like anything else by sort of practice and experimenting and trying things out. So I think people should just give it a go. Of course, don't use any of that confidential, you know, information, but, um, you know, just play around with it and, you know, you'll just start to develop, you know, smart ways to work with it. And that's going to then bring out its sort of most valuable capability. Thank you, Tim. And uh, Steve, uh, what is your advice for companies who want to start the AI journey? Fundamentally, IR teams should think about these tools as how it provides them more time to focus on the real value that they offer. An investor relations professional is an expert in relationship building, whether that's internally or externally with investors and analysts. So we ran a piece on our website, which I think sums this up really well in terms of you should think about AI as moving from man versus machine to man plus machine. Not a very gender neutral way of saying it, but you know, um, so be it. Um, I think I think the sentiment there is is pretty clear. In terms of how companies can get started on their AI journey, totally reiterate what Tim said in terms of experiment in a safe way. Um, you know, not putting proprietary information in there, but look at what the capabilities are of this. Um, I'd also say, just look at what your peers are doing. There's real concrete examples of how companies are actually using this as well. Um, Many of them highlighted uh, events and webinars and on articles that we're doing as well. So keep up to date with your peers and use them as, as inspiration. Thank you, guys. We can talk about this for hours. I feel like we're going to have another podcast uh, about AI maybe in a couple of months or who knows, even next month. It depends what happens. So thank you very much for today. You can find out more about our uh, coverage of AI and much more on our website. You can uh, watch the webinar on irmagazine.com. But it's now time for a short break. Stay with us as coming up next is Lawrence Taylor in conversation with Aaron Howold from Louisiana Pacific Corporation to talk about IR changes and opportunities for small cap companies. Don't go away. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you are a public company, Pulse by public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors. Share your company narrative with innovative formats. Make investor information more discoverable. Reach retail investors where they're already engaged and much more. Pulse by public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders, amplify company communications, and gain actionable insights into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo. Well, Aaron, welcome to our recording studio here in London. It's great to see you again. I think the last time we met was in uh, September in New York at our small cap event. So great to have you here. Um, are you happy to just kind of give an introduction to yourself sure. and your company a little bit for, uh, for our listeners? Sure, happy to. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Lawrence. Good to see you again in person. I'm Aaron Howald, uh, Vice President of Investor Relations and Business Development for LP Building Solutions. Uh, we make engineered wood structural panels for residential construction and exterior siding. Um, 
as you said, we're here in your studios. This is our first time back in London in three years. This was the trip that we made right before COVID. Uh, so great to be mm. back. Great to be somewhat back to normal. Yeah. Well, I want to get your thoughts on that as well, Ben. So, so you're here on, a, is this a, um, a road show that you're on at the moment? It is. And, and what are your thoughts on kind of, I mean, are we back to normal now? Or are you kind of still feel like you're navigating that, that balance between in-person and virtual? I think we are close to back to normal. I think we're settling into sort of a hybrid mode where mm-hmm. uh, it's a mix of in-person and face-to-face. And I think that can generally work pretty well. I think what we're finding is that the virtual meetings are uh, fast, easy, efficient. You can have more of them. Um, but the quality isn't nearly as good. And so with some, you know, some frequency that we'll find, we'll find an equilibrium, uh, but it needs to be a mix. Um, yeah. And so uh, really glad to be back here to, again, you know, rebuild those relationships in person uh, with people that I haven't been in the yeah. same room with in three years. Absolutely. And in London and, and Geneva, you said as well. So yeah, Geneva as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that's the, now that you're here, the, the kind of, and, and travel is sort of back on, do you think the emphasis is going to be on maximizing the efficiency of travel and then for sure i mean i think the virtual meetings are so efficient that it makes people want to make the most out of every trip Mm. right i mean for fortunately there's a direct flight here from nashville so that simplifies things a little bit but you know if you're going to spend 12 hours in an airplane the in-person meetings have to really mean something yeah Uh, and so we cram as many of them as we can into the available time and we really make sure that we're prepared to be as informative and as helpful as we can be while also building a relationship so that in the interim, as we have virtual meetings, they can they can continue to be useful. Of course, yeah. So when we last spoke, like I said, it was our small cap event in uh, in New York in mm-hmm. September. We talked about the, the role of uh, IROs during periods of market uncertainty. I think we're, we're certainly still in that uncertain environment, but it would be good to get your, your thoughts on kind of how the macroeconomic situation has changed since then. Um, sure. Are you kind of... Are you more optimistic now than you than you were then, or what are your thoughts on how things have changed and, and, and how you're kind of navigating that? Yeah, I would say long term, my optimism is undiminished. There's a structural undersupply of homes in the United States, uh, and the average home is getting older because we're not building fast enough. LP's products are used in new residential construction and repair and remodel projects, so that's a structural tailwind that we're very well positioned to take advantage of. In the near term, however. There is probably more uncertainty now than there was when we spoke, particularly with regard to interest rates. Interest rates ran up another couple hundred basis points between that event in New York um, and now. And what we saw in December was a 50 basis point fall in mortgage rates and a significant increase in mortgage applications. So that shows that there's pent up demand, but that the demand is interest rate sensitive. And particularly with what's happened over the last couple of weeks with uh, the Silicon Valley Bank failing and Mm. some other banks being stressed. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the market responds to that, how the feds respond to that, and how interest rates move uh, in response. That's really the biggest near-term driver for right. uncertainty in housing. But there's no question that the demand is there. And so yeah. I think when we have interest rate clarity, builders will come back to the market quickly. And, um, of course, you know, we spoke specifically about how, the, how that uniquely impacts smaller cap companies, didn't mm-hmm. we? Um, maybe you could just say a little bit about Sure. That as well, and like some of the kind of challenges unique to to those kind of small. Yeah. To, to so we're four and a half billion dollars in market cap, give or take. A little bit difficult to keep track of as the stock moves up and down. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've been as high as the high sixes, um, and at the end of twenty twenty one, I think what our investors want us to communicate is not point estimates. You know, people don't want me to tell them what housing starts are going to be when they're reported on Friday. And if I did, mm-hmm. I'd be wrong every time. The question is just by how much and in which direction. 
investors want to know that LP has scenario plans and has a strategy that's flexible and can work in various rate environments. Uh, and so what I'm communicating is, is not a false sense of certainty about what will happen in the broader market, but confidence that our strategy will work in various markets. Yeah. Uh, for example, our capital allocation strategy has allowed us to buy back about half of our outstanding shares in the past two years, which from cash flow, we didn't, we stayed cash positive the whole time. Uh, kind of an extraordinary set of circumstances that allow that. Commodity prices now are, are much, much lower. We're generating much less cash. So the capital allocation strategy hasn't changed, but the execution of that strategy is, is dependent on circumstances in the market. So I'm communicating about how we can be flexible, how we can respond, how our strategy isn't predicated on accurate predictions. Uh, and I think that uh, has helped reassure investors that we have we understand the situation as best we can uh, and we have plans to, to drive value come what may. Yeah, definitely. And, and speaking of kind of engaging with, um, with shareholders in different markets, of course, you know, you, you have you have investors globally. Mm-hmm. Um, how is is there a difference in kind of the, your engagement tactics with with uh, shareholders when you make these trips to Europe versus how you engage with shareholders in the US? And I'm sure even within the, the US, there's lots of different ways that you, that you engage with your shareholders. Yeah. But is there any kind of general trends and, and differences you see geographically there and, and how you navigate those? Yeah, well, superficially, being closer to US investors means I can see them more often face to face. Of course. Um, okay. But in terms of the topics and the tone and the emphasis, I would say that in general, UK investors and basically non-US investors broadly tend to have a, a different focus in two ways. One, it's a little bit longer term. And, and two, there's a little bit more emphasis on ESG, particularly the E in ESG. Mm-hmm. Long term shows up for LP in that a significant portion of our business is priced as a commodity. It's a commodity forest product and the price fluctuated incredibly over the past two years, generated significant cash flow, as I just mentioned. Shorter term investors tend to focus on that commodity product and what near-term price outlook is, and as a function of that, what the next quarter's cash flow will be, and for example, right. whether we'll be back in the market buying shares. Very short-term in focus. Our other product is a specialty product with much more stable prices and margins, and we're growing it. At, we, we actually convert capacity from commodity to specialty as we grow. Uh, and so that's a l- much longer focus growth um, business. Uh, and I would say that international investors tend to focus on that much yeah. more. It's not uncommon for me to have an hour-long meeting with Australian or British or Swiss investors and never talk about oriented strand board, which is our commodity product. The whole conversation is about macro environment in the mid to long term and yeah. growth plans for siding. Uh, so, so that's different. On the ESG side, look, we make our products out of wood. And so people could be forgiven for thinking that we're destroying the forest and you know belching smoke and leaving devastation in our wake. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. We, we, uh, every bit of fiber that we use is certified sustainable. Our products are yeah. carbon negative. Uh, what leaves our factory is finished goods, steam, and a little bit of heat. Uh, there, there's no solid waste stream, um, and we replant. We're, our factories today are running logs that we ourselves planted. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we celebrated our 50th, 50th anniversary last year. We, we hope to celebrate a 100th nice. anniversary. I won't be around for that. Uh, but uh, in order to have a future, we have to have a sustainable business model because natural raw materials are, are key to our product. Uh, and I think that's a bigger focus for, for European uh, investors than it is for U.S. investors at the moment, although I see the trend clearly moving in that direction. So yeah. I would say LP is relatively new to telling that story. We only just published our second uh, 
sustainability report. Uh, we've only recently published environmental product declarations for our products, but our processes are inherently very sustainable. The products are carbon negative and, and we didn't have to do anything arbitrary. We didn't have to buy a bunch of offsets to make that happen. Um, so we're proud of that story and, and we're going to get better at telling it because we think, you know, that's where the future is. And, yeah. and I think European investors are a little bit ahead of the curve relative to American investors in that regard. That's really interesting. I feel like, you know, these are all topics that make for 45 minute discussions at mm-hmm. a conference and, and, you know, we've managed to condense in a lot and we, we could keep going. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm conscious that, that we're running out of time. Um, but um, yeah, that, that was a, a really fascinating discussion and, and great to get your insights and all that. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very glad to be back in London. This was our last trip right before COVID. So it does feel like we're getting a little bit back to normal. Uh, hopefully we can be here a little bit more regularly. Um, yeah. Because, uh, you know, we have a, a growing investor base over here and we want to make sure that we're available and, and communicating with them and learning from them. You know, what matters to them? Glad to be here. Join us at our seventh annual Women in IR Forum in New York on April 27th. The Women in IR Forum aims to break the glass ceiling in investor relations and helps women across the profession to develop their network and share career development advice. Some of the topics being discussed include how to balance the demand of the IR role with those of being a parent, the actions companies and individuals can take to support diversity in the IR field, advice on how to progress in your career through adoption of new responsibilities, ways to build your personal brand through social media and networking and enhance your visibility in the industry. We will also provide a special opportunity to engage in one-to-one mentoring sessions with established female IR leaders to share ideas and provide insights on how to navigate the evolving role of investor relations. More information about how to join is available at irmagazine.com. Welcome to IR Pulse by public.com the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts and other executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I'm delighted to welcome Austin Hankwitz, Executive Chair of Wits Ventures. His company has invested in 23 startups across all rounds of financing, advises media and fintech companies on marketing strategies, and conducts business development for other budding creators. Austin is based near Nashville, Tennessee, The financial creator has more than 670,000 followers in finance investing on TikTok alone. Austin's featured in Business Insider, CNBC and Bloomberg, among others. He's worked with the head of investor relations at the Louisiana healthcare company Amidius, so he has first-hand experience of the IR world. This is exciting, James. Thanks so much for having me. Really uh, pumped to get into the questions. Welcome to the ticker. Thank you very much for joining us. To get started, tell us about yourself and your impressions about investor relations from your own perspective, please. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everyone. My name is Austin Hankwitz. You know, as James so well uh, walked through, I'm a full-time content creator, podcaster, and investor. I graduated from the University of Tennessee in 2018 with a degree in finance and economics and took that to go do mergers and acquisitions for a publicly traded healthcare company uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Investor relations used to be boring, right? When I worked at my previous employer, I'd help here and there with their IR activities, as you all probably know so well. It's a lot of meetings, recordings, legal and compliance, a lot of repetitive tasks in nature. But over the last few years, as we've kind of seen the retail investor begin to care more and more about becoming owners and not just consumers, 
IR has begun to, you know, include somewhat of community management. So really excited to jump into the episode and expand more upon that idea. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Austin. As a retail investor yourself and someone who is an expert in developing compelling and informational content online, what would be your advice to IR teams when it comes to better presenting company updates and communications? Yeah, really good question. And I hardly call myself an expert, but I appreciate that, James. Um, You know, I think this question is answered from two angles, right? One is the traditional updates and the second is like the storytelling side. So starting with the storytelling side, because I think that's more fun to think about, companies shouldn't just be businesses. They should also think of themselves as media companies, right? Here's what I mean. There's a publicly traded fintech company out there named Money Lion, and I think they're doing a really good job of sharing company updates in a unique way. So they took a step back and asked themselves, what categories can we bucket our customers in and then ranked those categories from highest to lowest lifetime value for the business, right? And the highest lifetime value were customers who were using their app for investing in the stock market, crypto, et cetera, you know, think about like the average retail investor. So, you know, then it was like a question of how can we get these customers to also care about what we're working on behind the scenes? So what they did to solve this problem and sort of lean into this storytelling was they launched a daily newsletter. I think it's called like the Money Lion Market Roundup or something like that. But essentially it was a, a you know, it was their way of accomplishing two things, providing value to their highest LTV customers on a daily basis and creating communication rails to share updates on new product features, as well as their own earnings releases with people that actually care, right? So then on the other side is like the traditional investor. And, you know, I think that's all about the easy wins and just, you know, meeting retail investors where they're at. That could be Twitter. I think a Twitter uh, just off the rip here, right? Another tie back to kind of money line, but they've had a dedicated IR account on their Twitter for the last couple of years. And something that's really easy for any company to start, just kind of tag your, your cash tag and, you know, you're off to the races with your updates. But, you know, thinking about it from both the traditional and the storytelling side is, is really important for any IRO listening right now, for sure. Storytelling as always key and definitely plays a part. And so interesting to hear the relatively low tech newsletter become part of the arsenal, uh, not to be ignored, still very important, direct to the investor's inbox. Fantastic. What are your thoughts on executives building their personal brands online for the purpose of retail IR? I mean, what are the pros and cons in your view? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm a huge believer in this, to be quite honest, that, you know, you kind of take a zoom out and you know, you think a lot of startup founders are already sort of building in public and, you know, they're able to take customer feedback and reiterate on their, on that feedback and, and kind of create new products against that feedback at the speed of culture. Um, but I know things are much different between startup founders and publicly traded executives, but, you know, there's a reason that Tim Cook has more followers on Twitter, right? 14 million than the company he leads Apple with only 9 million, right? People follow people, not brands. So, you know, sure, there's an underlying sense of community for shareholders to a company, and I think that's natural, but I'd argue that retail investors want to look towards someone for guidance and excitement just as they do the company. So the pros are pretty simple, uh, in my opinion. It's it's natural for people to want to follow other people and, you know, being able to share real-time thoughts and feedback with your sort of quote-unquote true fans makes a wonderful feedback loop for uh, the builders, the engineers, the, the product managers, right? You know, just look at how Elon Musk, of all people, has been building publicly both, you know, Tesla and Twitter over the last decade through his own Twitter account. I mean, people, he has like a cult-like following now. 
you know, the cons though are also uh, apparent, right? You know, I, I think you all remember when Elon tweeted funding secured or something and the SEC uh, got upset with him about that. So you can't say the wrong thing online when the SEC comes knocking at your door. And unfortunately, retail investors might also correlate the company's stock price with you and your day-to-day actions, which obviously isn't rooted in reality, but can make a nasty comment section depending on the price action. So all in all, I think it's a net positive to have your company executives build their personal brands online. I, I don't think there has to be sort of like even anything to do with the company, um, if, if that's the, the way you want to take it, right? You don't have to be, you know, the Tim Cook or the Elon Musk. You can just be, for example, the Tim Chuisano. He's a VP of production at Charter Communications Marketing Division. And he's done a wonderful job over the last, call it six to nine months, sharing day in the life of being this kind of person in his 40s in New York City. He's got a million followers now on TikTok and people love the guy. Nothing to do with his business, nothing to do with who he works for just building up his personal brand. So I think it's a net positive and, and there's a couple of ways to approach it for sure. That's fascinating. I must look him up. Sounds like quite an authentic person. He's not coming out with outlandish claims like perhaps some others that we're familiar with. And you're absolutely right. Have to keep in mind compliance, rules and regulations, do the right thing, even in the social media space, just as much as anywhere else. So important. Absolutely. I wondered... You create content for retail investors. What are some of the insights that you've been picking up on over the past couple of years, especially among volatility? Um, How have retail investors' behaviors changed, if at all? Yeah. You know, they're not all gone, but a lot of like those kind of Reddit and Twitter anonymous accounts who just like came and went because they thought that they could get rich quick beyond their wildest dreams, like on themselves apes or whatever like those people i think are gone at this point right um i think a lot of people learned the hard way that there's no get rich quick scheme with investing and but you know those who have like the proper guidance and educational resources to build a diversified portfolio for the long term right because you think like not just overnight investing but truly like who am i as an investor right um i think those people are going to continue to stick around and, and build um you know generational wealth following the tried and true strategies like dollar cost averaging um on the bright side, I think a lot of people still care, right? They really, really care. They read the newsletters, they listen to the earnings calls, they want to be better investors, and they want to learn, which is why I think it's more important than ever for um, IR professionals to continue uh, connecting with these people and giving them what they're so hungry for. Because at the end of the day, you know, the people who still care, um, you know, if you are able to build the communication rails and those communities for them it's going to be so much easier to keep them around in perpetuity versus just the ups and downs of the folks who like follow the newest trend. So if you're able to find that community and build the rails around that, like they're going to stay around. Absolutely. Invest in those who, who are here for the longer term, I guess. And there, there was that Wild West style frenzy a, a while back, but maybe things have quietened down a bit. Maybe the, the, the flash harries have moved on. What's your your feeling? What's the lay of the land at the moment with retail investors? Yeah, I think I think you're you're sort of correct there, right? I think a lot of people who I mean, I'm sure you knew this, James. Like you probably had a couple of friends who were like, "Hey, man, I'm in GameStop and AMC now. Are you?" And it's like, "Ah, oh, no." Right? I think it kind of uh, brings me back to when Warren Buffett uh, was talking about where he was getting his shoes shined one day, and his shoe shiner was giving him stock tips, and he's like, "Okay, when my shoe shiner gives me stock tips, that's when I know." 
that it's uh, things are getting a little too frothy. Things get a little too exciting here. So, you know, I think we, you know, that came and saw and went uh, in 2021. And, you know, after I think the bear market of 2022, a lot of people had to take a step back and really realize, wait, maybe this crazy GameStop, AMC, you know, cult-like following stuff isn't for me. Maybe instead I should think about dollar cost averaging and investing toward my future in a more responsible way and, and really leaning into the tools and resources that are publicly provided to achieve that. Absolutely. And I can picture Buffett now with his, uh, his expression, getting stock tips from his shoe shiner. Good stuff. Social channels, though, are new terrain for many IR teams. What advice do you have for IR teams looking to build social channels specifically for IR communications? Yeah, I think starting with Twitter is like just such an easy layup, right? It's the same as like a press release you might already be sharing to your IR website, but now you're able to distribute it to another platform. You can use your cash tag, you can reply to questions and everything in between. I think it's just a really awesome place to start. Uh, next up would probably be LinkedIn, I'd say, right? That's where maybe more of the sophisticated folks might be hanging out. Uh, maybe you can share like monthly updates, obviously lean into those press releases and anything in between. Um, you don't have to jump right into video like with TikTok and YouTube off the rip. Like you just kind of ease yourself into the into the waters here. You know, I think public.com though is another awesome opportunity uh, to connect with those uh, retail investors because they have these town halls, right? They're essentially like Q&A events with company execs giving retail investors the opportunity to directly ask executives questions about their businesses. I got to ask, it was just such a cool opportunity, right? Like I got to ask the CEO of, of a firm, ticker symbol AFRM, it's like a buy now, pay later company, questions about his business. And he answered, like that to me is just so fun. So yeah, public.com I think is another awesome uh, way to connect. Good advice indeed. Austin, before we finish our segment, you've amassed a huge following on social media yourself, including TikTok. I wondered, how have you gone about doing that? And do you think TikTok has a place in an IRO's toolkit for effective shareholder engagement? Yeah, so you know how I went about doing it was, I think, consistently sharing transparent and authentic content with the world and people just come, right? Everyone has their own story and unique experience to lean on. And there's absolutely a tribe of people out there waiting to connect with you to, uh, and just, it just kind of build upon that tribe. Like that just exists. But do I think TikTok has a place for an IRO's toolkit? It's hard to say, right? I think companies like public.com or shareholder labs or griffin.com and Others who are directly engaging with shareholders and actively trying to form those relationships would be probably better platforms and, and ways to engage the retail investor than just like broadly casting a net out to like a TikTok or a YouTube. But instead of thinking about the platform used for distribution, I would just really encourage these IROs to think about the asset that is being distributed in the first place, right? Short form video. These assets can be shared on TikTok or Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, including YouTube, right? But the list is endless. So if you want to begin connecting with your shareholders, meet them where they're at, not just on the platform, but how they're consuming that content. Excellent. Fascinating and topical insights, Austin. Thanks so much for sharing them with the ticker on behalf of PulseByPublic.com. Many thanks indeed. Yeah, thanks so much, James. And shout out to Katie Perry from public.com for facilitating this conversation. And if anyone listening has questions, I'd be happy to answer them. I'm at Austin Hankwitz on all my social media platforms. So feel free to shoot me a DM or email me uh, at austinhankwitz at gmail.com. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Ticker Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine in partnership with our sponsor, Pulse by public.com. Huge thanks for their support.
You can learn more about Pulse at public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.